Hello everyone, I'm Ronnie McBrayer, and you are listening to Keeping the Faith. On this podcast, you will find my regular talks, the occasional interview, hopefully a little light from the Enneagram time to time, and hear conversations with friends on the ever-changing, ever-evolving nature of faith. If you are burned out on religion, to quote Eugene Peterson's marvelous paraphrase, but faith is still important to you, or if you consider yourself a spiritual exile with no real place of belief to call home, then I have you especially in mind, and I hope you'll stick around. Keeping the Faith is brought to you without ads or commercial interruption of any kind, except for this one invitation. I have friends who are inspired by what they hear from Keeping the Faith, and those friends support my work. But you can support this podcast as well by buying me a coffee. Buy Me a Coffee is a tiny little link where you can throw a few bucks into my tip jar and keep me busy behind the counter serving up the best episodes I have to offer. Simply go to buymeacoffee.com slash McBrayer, and you can easily and securely donate to the cause. You can also go to my website, RonnieMcBrayer.org, and click on Podcast. You will find several ways to lend a hand, and you can also choose your favorite listening platform, be it Apple, Podbean, or Spotify, so that you will never miss a single life-changing, day-making, death-defying episode. Thank you for being a regular listener. This morning, we return to Luke chapter 4 for our scripture lesson. It is the account of Jesus' return to his hometown. Jesus stands and reads as would have been the custom, so everyone could hear what he had to say. And then he rolls up the scroll and hands it back to the attendant. And as the attendant wrestles with that scroll to put it back in place, and he would have wrestled with it, the scroll would have been about three feet high and 20 feet long. Jesus does this on purpose to occupy the man because Jesus takes the attendant's seat. He took the seat, what we might call the pulpit, the son of the carpenter, the young man who ran off with some harebrained idea of chasing after John the Baptist down into the desert a hundred miles away, takes over the worship service. And you will hear that in the reading today. This is Luke 4, 14 through 20 from the New Living Translation. Then Jesus returned to Galilee, filled with the Holy Spirit's power. Reports about him spread quickly through the whole region. He taught regularly in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. When he came to the village of Nazareth, his boyhood home, He went as usual to the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read the scriptures. The scroll of Isaiah the prophet was handed to him. He found the place where this was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. He rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant, and sat down. And now we understand this line, all eyes in the synagogue 
looked at him intently. What is he about to do? Then he began to speak to them. The scripture you've just heard has been fulfilled this very day. The word of the Lord. Last week we learned that at the end of his very short sermon, the congregation stood not to applaud Jesus, but they attempted to kill him. I've had people get quite angry with me about some things I've said over the years. No one has tried to kill me yet. Get me fired, maybe. Force an apology or to change my mind or tone, sure. Ugly, threatening emails from some of the columns I've written over the years, sure. But no one has actually laid their hands on me to kill me. I'd like to keep that streak going today. But Jesus had a knack for this sort of thing. This is not the last time this would happen. What was it that made the people of Nazareth so angry with their native raised son? I said last week that when I have spoken from this text in the past, I pointed out that their rage is aimed at Jesus at his person. Kind of this, just who does he think he is? I mean, coming here and taking over the service is one thing. But then when you read a messianic job description and say that you have fulfilled it, well, that's going a little bit too far. And so there is this anger that they have no doubt about that. But what strikes me upon my reading of the text this time is that the rage is directed at Jesus because how he applied the words of Isaiah to them. They loved all this talk about good news for the poor. They loved Jesus preaching about releasing the captives and setting the oppressed free and God's good favor coming to them. So long as it was them. Tell us how we have got it right. Which is so often what people want to hear when they go to church. Reinforce my already well-established conclusions. Oh, how God loves me and me. Who doesn't love that? But when Jesus starts talking about, and he does in this text, the verses that follow, foreigners and outsiders and oddballs and all of those people they had spent their lifetimes being suspicious of, if not outright hating, getting the same kind of good treatment as them, well, wait just a minute. Jesus was taking God's good grace and breaking it loose in the world. It wasn't just for a select, elected few. It was for all who needed it. And all need it. The good folks at Nazareth. And if we had met them, we would have liked them. They would have been the town's good people. Rabbis, shopkeepers, business owners, farmers, all upstanding and outstanding citizens. But they were none too pleased with a message about sharing God's grace with others, with those outside their well-guarded circle. And we all have our well-guarded circles. Denise Simonson once sent me a copy of a story about a Holocaust survivor. Denise is 
own family narrowly escaped the Nazis as well in their time. And this story is about a man named Yankel. He's from Crown Heights, Brooklyn, New York. He owned a bakery there and he tells his story this way. Do you know why it is that I'm alive today? I was a kid, just a teenager at the time. We were on the train in a cold boxcar being taken to Auschwitz. Night came. It was freezing, deathly cold. The Germans would leave the cars on the side of the tracks overnight, sometimes for days on end without any food and, of course, no blankets to keep us warm. Sitting next to me was an old man, a beloved elderly man whom I recognized from my hometown, but I'd never seen him like this. He was shivering from head to toe. He looked terrible. So I wrapped my arms around him and began rubbing him to warm him up. I rubbed his arms and his legs and his face and his neck. I begged him to hang on. All night long, I kept the man warm this way. I was tired. I was freezing myself. My fingers were numb. But I didn't stop rubbing the heat into this old man's body. And finally, the night passed and morning came and the sun began to shine and there was a little warmth in the boxcar. And that's when I looked around the car to see some of the others. And to my horror, all I could see were frozen bodies. And all I could hear was deathly silence. Nobody else lived through the night. They died from the frost. Only two people survived. The old man and me. The old man survived because I kept him warm. And I survived because he was warming me. And he finishes his story by saying this. That is Judaism 101. And I would say that is Christianity 101 as well. As we were taught... By that Jewish rabbi. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. It doesn't get any more elemental than that. But it is still easy to forget. And easier still not to put into practice. For Jews, for Christians, for humans. We want to be warm. We want love and we want grace and we want security and freedom and clear vision and well-being. We want all the messianic blessing Jesus quoted from the prophet Isaiah, but we don't always want to share it. We don't always want to help others get in on it too. It's a sad state of affairs (laughs) when basic human decency can get you canceled in our culture today. When you start talking about sharing your blessings, and you're automatically labeled as some kind of socialist. I get those emails too, by the way. When you start talking about the wideness of God's grace and mercy, and people write you off as a heretic simply because you believe God is good and better than we have imagined. We live in such an entitled, selfish, self-centered society that when we begin to broach the subjects of concern and care and patient assistance and breaking the cycles of poverty and violence, intervening to help the least of these, of intentionally taking sides with the weak 
and the poor. The very crux of what Christianity or Judaism looks like when practiced publicly. It is dismissed as some kind of Pollyanna idea at best or Marxism at worst. How did this happen? We have made compassion for others, especially others that are not like us, a sin in our culture. We would rather kill this message of radical grace than to practice it. And that is a threat to our very souls. So hear this Jewish prophet. Hear this Jewish rabbi. Listen to Isaiah. Listen to Jesus. When the kingdom of God comes, it is made manifest as good news. And it is good news for the poor. What would good news for the poor look like? Well, it might mean they have food on their table. Might mean they have a roof over their head. Safety, security. Not going to have to worry about their children growing up in a hovel or wonder if their children will get a chance to go to school. It's good news that the captives will be released. What captives? Those who have not had a chance at justice. Those wrongly accused and wrongly held. Those locked up at borders. Kids separated from parents. Prisoners of conscience in jail cells on the other side of the world. The blind will see. Who are these? Those blinded by disease. By ignorance, by lack of opportunity, those who have no access to a doctor, a hospital, a counselor, a shot at being healed or have well-being. And the oppressed will be set free, those who have been taken advantage of, those abused, molested, those who have suffered violence at the hand of a spouse, a parent, a partner, or an employer, those trapped by starvation wages, trapped by social, economic, and cultural chains. When all of these conditions are put into arrears, when there is a great reversal of poverty, injustice, sickness, and oppression, that is where the Lord's favor has come, and that is where the kingdom of God has invaded this present world. That's what the gospel looks like when it is lived out practically in a society. Last month, you may have seen this, a professor at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania released the results of a survey conducted of his students. It was a simple survey, one question. What is the average annual wage of an American worker? Now, these are all business and economic students. Their careers, their lives will be centered on finance and earnings, and they guessed north of $100,000 as the average wage. That's not total family income, that's average individual worker taking everyone from an 18-year-old making minimum wage to Jeff Bezos, the richest man in the world, and they guessed $100,000 with multiple students guessing northward of a half a million dollars. No, it's about $50,000. They were simply unaware to the real world around them. How could they not be? They didn't know any poor people. And sometimes the church says, we're going to help some poor people. Do you know anybody? What a condemnation. They're everywhere. If you look. 
if you listen. Because we can be blind too. I crunched some numbers this week. 12% of Walton County lives below the poverty line. And statistics say, and I'm quite suspicious of this statistic, that the average home cost is about $250,000. Now that all sounds good until you realize how concentrated the wealth is along one particular 24-mile stretch of road. The residents in the three South Walton zip codes make the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania proud. Their guess is accurate there, where the median income is indeed beyond six figures, and the price of the average home in South Walton now is $1.75 million. You take that demographic from the mix and you realize the balance of our community is rife with scarcity. With far higher rates of poverty than the national average and far, far, far lower rates of income. We'll all go out to eat lunch today and have a great time. I intend to. There's nothing wrong with that. You go to the beach, you have a great time. You look at all the beautiful homes that are being built. We live in some of those And if we're not careful, it will blind us to the fact that the majority of people in our greater community have no access even to decent housing, much less something like what we see around us. Now, I'm not blaming or shaming anyone for having wealth, but don't let your wealth, and this is said to all of us, regardless of our economic class, don't let it blind you to the poor to the imprisoned, to the sick, and the oppressed who live right here among us. Let the blessings we have received open our hearts and our hands and our time and our wallets to do more than practice charity. Let it open us to practice the gospel, to take our blessings and bless others. Borrowing a line, as is often the case with me, from another Jewish prophet, Robert Zimmerman better known as Bob Dylan. It's about toiling the chimes of freedom for all. Tolling for the rebel. Tolling for the rake. Tolling for the luckless, the abandoned, and the forsaked. Tolling for the outcast burning constantly at stake. Tolling for the aching ones whose wounds cannot be nursed. The countless confused, accused, misused, strung out ones and worse. And for every hung up person in the whole wide universe, we hear the chimes of freedom flashing. Ronnie, I don't come to church to be made uncomfortable. I get that email too. (laughs) I come to be lifted up. I know that. I'm just telling you that the gospel requires us that we see others who are indeed uncomfortable. That we see others who are in need of being lifted up themselves. If by grace you have the means, share it with those who don't. If by luck you find yourself on top, help someone else on their way. If by hard work you have built something really special, You know how hard that work is. Don't hoard it. Show somebody else how to do it. Don't be angry today. Be motivated to help others. 
Don't feel attacked because you find yourself with a few bucks in your pocket and a nice house to call home. Feel pulled into the fray. The fray of getting your hands dirty with the active boots on the ground gospel. That's why we're here. I was, I was raised poor. Hand to mouth. Paycheck to paycheck. And I understood very well personal poverty. It was only after I left the pastorate for a while and went to work for United Way and Habitat for Humanity that I came to understand systematic poverty. Generational poverty. Poverty that is reinforced by boundaries and race and culture and decades upon decades of dividing lines. If life was a baseball game, And you have to say amen to this. Some of us were born on second or third base when we started. We got a head start. That doesn't mean you run up the score. It means you help others run the bases. Show them the way. Well, that's just not how the world works. Then the world needs to change. Well, those aren't the rules. The gospel says change the rules. Because we are in it not just for us. We are all in it together no matter how much the forces in our society would pull us apart. As Dr. King would always say, we might have all got here on different ships, but we are in the same boat now. And we will live together, helping those who have less, or we will perish as a society pulls itself apart from all the dividing lines that we have. You have listened this long today without leaving and without trying to kill me, and I thank you. So you might ask, what can we do? What should we do? Well, have you taken the time to get to know the people who cut your grass? Know them by name? Their story? Their family? I suspect they are hard-scrabbling immigrants whose paperwork may or may not be in order. Getting to know them might help you in how to best help that hard-working community. Do you know the person who waits on you at your favorite restaurant? She's probably from Moldova or Belarus, and she's trying to find half the opportunity that we were born with. Have you ever talked with people here in this congregation, many of them are here today, who spend enormous amounts of time and personal investment underwriting treatment centers and mission houses and habitat affiliates and causes far and wide? They are here and they use their means the best way they can. They don't feel guilty because they have been blessed. They feel blessed because they have been blessed. And they try to share it with somebody else. Have you ever thought about teaching English as a second language? Helping old folks or the illiterate with filing their taxes? Giving reading instructions at the county jail or at a juvenile lockup? Can you provide a room for a kid who's really working hard? Can you help a public cashier with their transportation? You You can change someone's life in big ways and in small ways just by opening your eyes to the poor around you and looking beyond your comfortable circle, the imprisoned, the sick, the oppressed, the down and out, the least of these. Hold your judgment on what they deserve. 
and just remember, but for the grace of God, there would go any one of us. It is a cold, cruel world, if I can return to Yankel's story. But as you reach out to warm others, you will warm yourself. And St. Vincent de Paul said it best. God has given the rich to the poor to save their bodies. God has given the poor to the rich to save our souls. So may the scripture we've heard today be fulfilled in each and every one of us. You have been listening to Keeping the Faith, the podcast home of yours truly, Ronnie McBrayer. You can follow me on Facebook or Twitter, whatever your socialization preference may be. At Ronnie McBrayer will get you there in either case. Visit my website at RonnieMcBrayer.org, and there you can stay up to date. On my speaking schedule, books I have written, projects just over the widening horizon, and yes, you can find out more about me than anyone truly wishes to know. Thanks to Shutterstock Incorporated, located in New York City's Empire State Building, no less, for producing and licensing my theme music. Bobby Rains provides recording and technical expertise. Tim Riles created the Keeping the Faith logo and artwork. And Lynn Sunshine on My Shoulder Crow is credited with any and all photography. And as always, Toby and Mo, the two small wonder dogs that run my home, assisted with all editing. I'm Ronnie McBrayer. This has been Keeping the Faith, and I thank you for listening.